Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guest is someone who has had a career now into its fifth decade and is someone who I've been interviewing on and off for just under 20 years. He's held senior roles in broking businesses, underwriting firms and right in the heart of Lloyd's. Today, Julian James is CEO of Global Markets Commercial PNC Insurance at Sumpo International. This is a global role that encompasses everything related to commercial PNC in the Sumpo organisation that is outside of Japan or North America. Few executives could cope with a role that is this international, stretching from the Far East all the way across to Brazil. But it's a job that suits someone like Julian down to the ground, because he's someone who's been a globetrotter for as long as I've known him and has a global outlook on the insurance business. But just because I and many of you already know him, it doesn't mean that Julian has lost the ability to surprise. In this interview, I find someone energised and enthused about the challenge of creating and presenting a consistent and coherent SOMPO offering to worldwide clients. With myriad jurisdictions, systems, brokers, languages and cultures to deal with, this is extremely hard to do. I also meet someone heading a business that has been discreetly increasing many of its risk appetites, while most others have been moving in the opposite direction, and which has grown quickly as a result. I also meet a global representative of a huge business that, as recently as five years ago, was not at all well known or understood outside its core Japanese market, and has a large amount of communicating to do. Listening back, this is a remarkably broad and fun conversation that covers a vast array of topics, and lifts the lid on Julian and the wider Sompo organisation's strategic thinking, on the key issues facing the market. We even briefly touch on Eastern and Western philosophy. Enjoy the podcast. Julian, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Mark, thanks for the invitation to come back. I think it was three years ago that... I know. You and I last talked, and it's always nice to be invited back, you know. Now, you were a very good guest, so you can definitely come back. And also, so much has changed. Your job title's changed. Well, it was the middle of a lockdown, I think, or one of the periodic lockdowns, I can't remember. But we certainly did it over a Zoom call rather than face-to-face. We're now face-to-face in fantastic offices in Minster Court in the centre of London. And your job title has changed since. You're now CEO of Global Markets, but before you were the CEO of International Insurance. So why don't you just update us on how your roles change and how you fit in with the wider Sompo organisation these days? Sure. My roles changed a little bit. When you and I last spoke back in August 2020, my role was really to look after the Sompo operations in Europe and Bermuda. And since then, my role's changed to basically look after all of the commercial lines insurance business for Sompo outside of Japan and outside of North America. And in practice, what does that mean? It means we've got quite extensive operations in Brazil. We've got pretty big operations all around Europe, including in Turkey. We have positions in 10 countries around Asia outside of Japan. So I've got a pretty wide remit. If you put that in the context of premium dollars, that probably adds up to around about three, three and a half billion dollars of gross written premium. So many countries many different types of risk, many different types of operation. And it's very much in keeping with what we're trying to do within Sompo, which is to kind of pull together all of the sort of parts of Sompo into one coherent operation. And so in terms of scale, compared to what you were doing before, presumably this is a much bigger operation in terms of the GWP that's under all of your auspices now. Yes, it is. And if you look at Sompo as a whole, our total GWP worldwide is around about $35 billion. 
out of that, about 15, 16 billion is outside of Japan. And then my world translates to about three, three and a half billion as part of that. So if this was a standalone operation, it'd still be a very sizable one. Are you trying to create a feel that someone would feel like they're part of the global markets team in some way? And you're such a globetrotter. You have been a great globetrotter throughout your career, particularly when you were at Lloyd's. Is there something you can do to feel like they're all sitting around one big table? Yeah, I mean, I think the theme very much within the company is pulling together all of the parts of the company so we kind of can act as a coherent force for our customers. And some of these operations have been around a long time and we feel we can deliver a better product for our customers if they get the same response in Malaysia than they would in Brazil. So a lot of the focus of the company is coordination and bringing the strengths of the company together. I think when you and I last talked, we were pretty clear about our long-term vision for the company, and that is that we wanted to be recognized as one of the top 10 global property and casualty insurers, and therefore growth was very important to us. And today, three years on from when we last spoke, by some measures, we're already in the top 10 of the global property casualty yeah. insurers. Quite interestingly, and this is, I'm not trying to make this a Sompo advertorial, but... You're absolutely allowed to. I mean, why wouldn't you? Well, thank you. <laughs> Um, but I'm sure there are more interesting things that we should be talking about than talking about ourselves. But it's been a phenomenal three years, or actually longer than that, for us as a company. And to put this in context, if you go back to 2018, and remember Sompo bought Endurance, absolutely, which was, I think, 2016, the size of Endurance at the time was about $3 billion. 2018, Sompo outside of Japan was around about $5.9 billion of premium. Today, Sompo International outside of Japan is just under $16 billion. So that is a phenomenal story of growth. And there hasn't been much M&A since then, so it's been organic. I mean, we've done one acquisition for an agricultural business in the US aviation business, but most of that has been organic. And it's been organic driven by us flexing our risk appetite. It's been driven by us investing in people and in countries. And we still feel there's a lot of runway ahead of us. Presumably also, you are know, trying to present this very similar face to clients in different operations and in different geographies within different cultures completely. And presumably that's been a huge amount of work on all your systems, your underwriting systems and all that kind of thing. Presumably there's been a lot of integration, I presume. There is a lot of integration. But there's also a lot of communication that's been needed. And if I go back, I joined Sompo back at the beginning of 2020. And I asked a number of people I've known around the world, you know, what they knew about Sompo. And these were brokers and customers and risk managers. And honestly, I think people didn't really realize too much about the scale and size of Sompo. So we've spent a lot of time over the course of the last three years trying to tell the story. And when you sit down with people and you say, well, actually, we're a $16 billion gross written premium organization outside of Japan. And inside of Japan, we own nursing homes and, you know, we're the second, third largest Japanese carrier. We own a life company. We have investments in digital companies all around the world. You know, the lights start coming on. And what we need to do as a company is one, communicate that, but also make sure that those global resources that we have are available for our customers.
If you walk into Sompo in Brazil, they know they can access all of the capability that we have around the world. So yes, it's about integration, the big communication piece, so people actually understand the depth of our capability. Acquisition might still happen, but I presume it's likely to be just bolt-on type acquisition that you feel you've got the platform. Yeah, I mean, who knows about acquisitions? I mean, we, like everybody else, think about acquisitions all the time. Things become available and people offer you, say, would you have a look at this? And of course, you you sort of have to have a look. And also just curiosity value, isn't it? You have to look. Yeah, you do. But I think from my standpoint, the important thing is you can't build your strategy around just acquisitions because there are so many factors outside of your control. You know, as you say, whether people become available and, you know, whether it's the right fit and whether you can agree the price. So what we have done very consistently over the last three to four years has been pretty merciless about trying to acquire talent. And there is all around the world a huge amount of talent. It's a very, very competitive labor market. And I don't have the numbers in my head, but if I think about the world that I look after, I suspect we've doubled the number of employees and we've brought in industry-leading experts in virtually everything that we do, whether it's here in London, whether it's in continental Europe, whether it's in Asia, and we'll continue to do that because you can control that and you can find people who understand our culture that will contribute to our success and brick by brick, we'll continue to build the organisation. Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow, but this is just a reminder that you could be advertising right here, right now, and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision makers in the insurance industry. And you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The Voice of Insurance has just run through 300,000 downloads. If each of those had had a 60-second ad in them, that would make 83 hours of talking to the industry for a fraction of the cost of alternative media. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com and I'll do everything I can to get you started. Now that you've been communicating, what do you communicate to those brokers? What are the three things that you have to keep hammering to them? First and foremost, I want us to be viewed as a trusted partner. We are in the business of providing risk solutions for their clients. And I'd like us to have the reputation, which I think we do have in certain parts of the world, of being an entrepreneurial risk-taking organization. And therefore, if you have that reputation, you can start delivering solutions for clients. And if I go back, it's quite interesting. I listened as part of my own preparation for our discussion today about the conversation that we had in 2020. And I talked then about the fact that in this crazy world of lockdown and this times of economic uncertainty and nobody being quite clear how all this was going to evolve, how important it was for us to flex our risk appetite. And the way we looked at this is thought, well, actually, clients are going through probably one of the toughest and most uncertain times that they ever have had. And what they need are people who are going to take on risk. So in many lines of business, we doubled our risk appetite, we came down lower on programs, we turned ourselves into a lead market on many things. And that's how I want us to be, not just perceived, but that's how I want us to deliver the products to our customers. Well, it was a good time to do it because many, many other leaders were walking the other direction or discontinuing lines or drastically reducing line sizes. 
going higher up, getting further away from the risk. So you just saw it as an opportunity as an entrepreneurial underwriting organization to say, right, well, there's a problem here to be solved. Why don't we solve this? There's always a need for people to supply additional risk capital. Again, I think back over the last three years and you think about what's happened to the world of risk. One of the things that's very, very clear is losses get bigger and the world of risk has got more and more scary. Now there's manifestation of that with this terrible situation that's going on in Ukraine. You know, we witnessed a $65 billion hurricane event in Florida last year. You know, we've seen disruptions to supply chains. And over the last 40 years that I've spent in the insurance world, one thing is for certain, and that is the world is becoming a riskier place. And therefore, clients need trusted partners who are going to help them with their own desire and need for risk transfer. So if I look to the future, you know, one of the things we try and get our minds around is how do we continue to have the sort of size of balance sheet that clients need to accept some of those additional risk exposures? And again, this is not about Sompo, but we're lucky. We're a big company. We have you know, strong security ratings of A+. We've got $40 billion plus of assets. And we have the luxury of being able to provide meaningful risk transfer capacity for our clients. And that's what we're going to continue to do. That's good. So that's the core message for the brokers. Well, we're still going to be here in five years' time. Yeah. Perhaps if the apocalypse keeps continuing every year, year in, year out, maybe we'll see, we'll see what we can come up with. But the core intention is to still be there and still be doing this business forever. Absolutely. And the clients I talk to generally want stability. They want stability and certainty. And they need to know that the people who they entrust with their risk are still going to be there to pay the claims in five or 10 years' time. And you know, stability is a really important commodity. And I think if I reflect on the last 10, 20 years, sometimes our industry hasn't done a very good job at providing stability to our customers. You know, there's a massive withdrawal of capacity in certain lines of business. There's huge pricing hikes. And no one likes those shocks. People want stability and certainty. And that's what we strive to deliver. I'm sure you'll ask me about market conditions. Well, yeah, that's my next question. So it seems like a good time to talk about it. What's this market like? We've been through so many different markets. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Some of those poor risk managers, particularly on the property side, they're probably looking at their fifth or sixth year of price rises, and there doesn't seem to be an end in sight. How's it looking? I would characterise this market overall as probably the most stable market I've witnessed in many years. There's a degree of equilibrium about the place. You know, you and I have talked in the past about this sort of endless obsession that we have as an industry about whether it's a hard market, whether it's a soft market. And I despair with that debate and that discussion. It's a very inwardly focused insurance-led discussion. And it doesn't translate well to the needs of our buyers. And I always think you've got to put yourself in the shoes of our customers and they're not interested whether it's a hard market, soft market, or whatever. What they're interested in is whether they can find well-rated, stable characters that are not going to give them shocks about the level of coverage that they can buy from the market or shocks in terms of prices. And I think if you look back over the last few years, there is a degree of equilibrium that's now established. There's a recognition from buyers that 
insurance companies should not lose money from underwriting. And if you also recognise that the world is becoming a riskier place, that translates into a higher risk premium. And it's up to us to make sure we communicate that effectively to our customers, and therefore you shape their expectation. But there are factors that are going on in the world. You know, I've talked about natural catastrophes and whether it's 120, 125 billion, whatever the number is that people say existed in 2020 for catastrophes, whichever way you look at that number, it's on a steady rise over a long-term trend. You know, we talk about the effect of inflation. We talk about the effect of social inflation. We talk about risks appearing that we didn't imagine four years ago. If I said to you there was going to be a global pandemic that was going to shut down the entire world, you never would have believed me. And I'd never believed myself. But these surprises continue to happen. And therefore, you've got to price for the unexpected. And if you do price for that, and customers understand why you're doing that, the world is a more stable place. And that's why I think we're in a period of equilibrium. When you say equilibrium, is it because there's effectively consensus from the risk manager that you and the insurance industry both agree that in order for them to get a product that gives them value, they do need to pay more for it? I think there's a general acceptance from risk managers that they need to pay a fair price for the risk transfer. There's always a lot of focus on the areas where there is still dislocation and property cat in the US is kind of one of those areas. But look at everything else, right? I mean, the world is not just driven by property cat, but it occupies 50% of the press coverage about what's going on in the world. Yeah, from a journalist's perspective, to defend journalists, it's interesting, it's newsy, and it's not that hard to get your finger on sort of whether it's going up 20% or 25%. No, it's not. But if I'm in Sao Paulo talking to one of our key customers... They don't care, right? They really don't care. It's not a big nat cat zone, apart from, of course, occasionally you get the odd tropical storm, even though it's not supposed to have any. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and you know, that's my point about the world becoming a riskier place, and there's always the unexpected. Of course, but they, you know, they've got, got wildfires, they've got everything else. And, well, you know, they've got all the other standard risks that are quite enough, thank you very much. So is there's an equilibrium. Is it a lean into the market risk? Because you've grown very fast then. Are you expecting to keep growing at an above average rate in this market? Without doubt. It's got to be an opportunity, hasn't it? I mean, it just still doesn't feel like that. No, it's an opportunity. But as I said earlier, we feel there's a lot of runway left. There's a lot of need amongst our customer base to continue to have further choice from the insurance market. And we think at Sompo we can provide that and we think we can deliver better solutions if we are more coordinated and act as a more coherent force in the market. And that's why a lot of my focus at the moment is bringing together our businesses and trying to bring together a consistent risk appetite in all parts of the world, all the way from Malaysia through to Turkey and Brazil. What about the parts of the market that, you know, have had a massive reset and then seem to be on the downward slope already, like we've like we've seen in public company DNO, that kind of thing? Is that a worry at all? Or do you think it's a reaction to an overreaction and that we might find a better equilibrium? I don't think you should get too distracted by that. Do I think it's logical? No, I don't. But there are many examples that I can point to in our world where we've done some pretty rational and stupid things well, over where the years. Was it that the sort of two, three hundred percent price hike that happened sort of three or four years ago now in public DNA? Was it slightly an overreaction? And then now it's just going to find a better level. It's not going to go whizzing back down. It's not going to be like a roller coaster, one presumes. I don't know. It, it looks a bit like a roller coaster when we look at the chart now, but I don't know. I would hope it's not. But we, as an industry, have not done a very good job sometimes of doing anything other than thinking for the short term. 
And I don't think that's healthy. And whether it's public company DNO or elsewhere, I think there are pockets of the market where you look at the activity and it is illogical. Does it make sense? Will people get hurt? I'm sure they will. So we kind of look at it and scratch our heads and think, well, can someone please explain the logic behind this? Another big thing that's happened since we last spoke was that reinsurance, after lots of huffing and puffing of many years, finally properly reset at the last big renewal 1-1. And that's continued in the property cap-focused renewals of the mid-year. Does that affect you as much as it would do a smaller player? Is it crimped your appetite in any way? Obviously, most treaties, most people have had to retain more. Your net retention's probably likely gone up. Or presumably, as you're part of a, such a large group, does it really matter as much? Are you so reliant on treaty? One presumes you're not. I mean, first, I should point out, we have a quite a large treaty business ourselves. And yeah. although I'm not responsible for that, you know, we do provide a you lot of inwards, yeah. inwards capacity. When I look at our business plans and our ambition for the future, we start very much from the basis of well, what do our customers want from us? And then you start thinking, well, can you put out that $100 million line or $250 million line that customers want from us? And then you start thinking, well, if you can do that, what's the best way to manage the volatility of that risk? And we're fortunate because we have a large balance sheet and we have flexibility about, therefore, how much we can retain ourselves and how much we should pass off to others. So when I think about the business, we don't really get distracted by building a plan around our reinsurance strategy. We think of ourselves as gross line underwriters. And we think of ourselves, what do we need to do for our customers? And then we think about how we manage that risk internally and whether we use group entities, whether we pass that off to others. But it would never be driven from what's going on in the reinsurance market. Right. So you can say, what is the right strategy for this market? And then think about how to manage it afterwards, going the other way around. Yeah. That's why you're a journalist, because you said something in a sentence where it took me 10 sentences to say that. Well, because I've been patiently listening to you, and then I can summarise what you've just said, and then summarise it wrong, so then you'll be unhappy with me, because I've oversimplified it. That's the other thing that journalists do, is oversimplifying. Obviously, another terrible thing that's happened since we last spoke was the Russian invasion of Ukraine and that conflict that's ongoing. How's that changed things? Obviously, you've got specialty lines. Has it changed much? I don't think it has. I mean, it's clearly a terrible economic and human tragedy, whichever way you look at it. And it's a great reminder of the point I made earlier, that we live in a really risky and uncertain world. And again, go back to August 2020, if you and I had the conversation about Russia invading part of Europe, you'd probably say that's never going to happen. Well, it has, and we're sitting here and it's still ongoing. And it's affected us from a financial standpoint in a very limited way. I mean, we've paid losses in Ukraine and the aircraft still on the ground there. And There have been other things that have gone on, but I think the main impact of that is leading to uncertainty in the world. And I think we live in a very uncertain world today. So it's sort of business as usual? Yeah, it it is. And again, it's another reminder to every risk manager out there that there are lots of other risks that maybe they're taking their eye off and more opportunity, one presumes. Yeah. I was checking through the SOMPO annual results, which are pretty good, I think. I saw the words controlled catastrophe risk-taking that caught my eye. One presumes that means that you're measuredly increasing your cat appetites. Because presumably, obviously, there's a huge amount of demand there. The demand's not gone away. The demand's only increased. An opportunity, one presumes, and at a much better pricing level than before. I think what we're trying to say about controlled catastrophe risk-taking is that we will 
go into any decision we take with our eyes wide open. And if we don't feel we're getting adequately paid for the risk, and whether it's cat risk or non-cat risk, well, we don't feel we need to offer our capacity and our balance sheet to do that. And it's the same. I mean, I, I think that we've had a view internally within the company over the last few years is that some of the property risks, and especially some of the property cat risks, whether it be insurance or reinsurance risks, have been underpriced. And therefore, we have slowly reduced our cat position in certain lines of business around the world when we don't think we're getting adequately paid for it. If that pricing environment changes, well, yes, we'll come back in because we've got the size of the balance sheet to flex. So when we use the word control, I think another way to look at that is going into markets with your eyes wide open, taking a view on whether there's adequate pricing. And if there is, yes, open up the doors. And if it's not, close the doors. It's pretty simple. So do you think overall, from a really big picture, it's probably a 30-year journey? Whereas previously, I think insurers didn't really understand cat risk at all. It just took everyone by surprise, but at least the market was able to react in always It was sort of looking in the rearview mirror, let's say, up until the early 90s. That's sort of almost what it was. And then a lot of more science, a lot more investment has gone into it. We've got quite sophisticated catastrophe modelling, and obviously now climate science has hugely advanced, for example, for, so for wind-based perils and everything else, and seismology has really also advanced. Are we starting to get a better handle on it, on a technical view of catastrophe, in a way that we're going to be much more comfortable with dealing with this? Not everyone agrees on this, but the majority of people now agree is, is, is a problem that we're probably going to have to deal with, this climate problem that we're going to have to tackle. Do we, some of the smart people in your organisation have got the handle now on where that price is and to know when to open the door and when to shut it? Well, ask me in five years' time. But no, undoubtedly, we know a lot more about potential risk and potential hazards. We've certainly had more experience, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, and it's actually it's funny you asked the question because I'm here in London, as I said earlier, and in our London office, we're hosting seven interns at the moment. And I met with them yesterday and they're all post-university and we're giving them work experience and all of that. And I wanted to meet with them and see what was on their mind. You know, I kind of explained I started my own life in the insurance world back in 1981. And one of them said, well, what's changed in 42 years? And I thought about it for a moment and thought, actually, what has changed is the level of information that we have to underwrite a risk. And I started explaining to them how business was transacted in 1981 in, in the London market. And I said, this was all prefaxes, and we had these things called telexes, and no one had heard of a telex. And I said, we would get our risk information in from the four corners of the world. And you know, the broker would pull together a presentation generally on two or three sheets of paper and you'd say, well, we've got this risk in Argentina and it's this refinery and this is the address and this is the value. And I said, today, you go and take that same risk in there and you have access to a wealth of data about that risk. You can pull up satellite images of location. You could look at where the nearest river is for flooding. You can look at whether it's an earthquake zone. You've got historical information that's proprietary information about types of hazard you get from that type of refinery. And the world is just so different. And I described to them, I said, we're now in a world where there is unlimited data and the skill comes from how you interpret that data. It doesn't come from whether you have the data or not. It's what you do with it and how you assess it. Yep. And these people just couldn't believe the fact that 
40 years ago and even 20 years ago. Trust and experience and then ho- and, and hoping that the loss record was accurate. But it was. It was a kind of finger in the air sort of approach. and well, you know, Burning cost plus something. Yeah. And you kind of looked at the loss experience and said, well, we'll add 10% and move on, you know. But- <laughs> so you're very optimistic. We're never going to be absolutely right. And of course, there's so much volatility within that what is correct. And probably looking at the data, the volatility is getting worse anyway, more extreme. But you're fairly confident that we, you know, at least we are progressing closer to that mean, closer to that correct understanding of risk and how to handle it. Clearly, we can't accurately predict events. Otherwise, people wouldn't need insurance and things like that. There is a lot of uncertainty. And you can look at the forecast. I saw a forecast the other day for the hurricane season in the US and whether it's going to be 10 named storms or five named storms, whatever it might be, who knows? We only need one to hit Miami and then we all know That's that. right. And that's yeah. my point. I said, you know, if you go 20 miles north of Miami, it's going to be a very different result if you go and hit South Beach, you know. So there's still a lot of uncertainty around what happens. You can get better and you can understand zip code modelling and, you know, what, what happens on particular paths. But still, there's a lot of unknowns out there about events that are going to happen and how those events unfold. Something I want to ask you is a big debate that's been happening in the market is around cyber. We've had better definitions, shall we say, and you know, market-wide definitions of symptom activity from Lloyds and probably supported by Munich Re and other reinsurers to get a handle on exactly what we are covering, what we're not covering within cyber and relating to war and warlike acts from state actors and that kind of thing. Where do you stand on that? Where I stand is that it's very good this debate is happening. And I'd put and so it's happening pre-loss. <laughs> yes, and uh, why I'm pleased the debate's happening. Wherever you come out, and whether it's right or whether it's wrong, people are beginning to try and get their minds around some of the exposures. And cyber is a world that's moving so quickly, and there are so many unknowns about people's capability to hack and extortion. And you know, we're sitting here in London this week, and the reports that. The BBC and British Airways have been compromised. And how all that happens, people are just beginning to try and understand. And I think if there are new risks, any debate about trying to improve people's understanding of it and control systemic exposure to a particular event, I think is very healthy. And that's a very responsible thing to do. And we had the sort of same debate, if you think, go back to SARS which some people won't remember, but, you know, we had this Asian flu and things like that. And everyone thought, well, actually, if there is a global catastrophic event and there's a pandemic, can we afford to pay the loss? And it changed our thinking. And I think whether it's cyber or whether it's anything else, we as an industry are getting a lot better about getting our minds around events that could bankrupt our industry. And therefore, that is going to be very, very healthy. Yeah, because there's no point promising to pay something that you really don't understand and you don't know if you can pay. So, I mean, that's the definition of fraud, isn't it? So we don't want to be fraudsters. Yeah, and again, you kind of bring it back to customers. (laughs) Customers expect you to be around to pay the losses when they happen. And as a custodian of our shareholders' capital, they're not going to thank me for allowing us to take on risk that is going to bankrupt and destroy the company. Would your view be that, of course, if you have the sort of more standard cyber risk and then very much excluding a particular warlike act, then, of course, the insurance industry in its entrepreneurial way is likely to create a standalone warlike act cover to fill the gap? 
but at least everyone knows what they're getting themselves into. Yeah, I mean, the insurance industry has got many, many examples of creating solutions for their clients. And they're very, very good. And the brokers are very good at pushing innovation and finding ways for us to underwrite risk as knowledge changes around particular events. Something else that's been ongoing probably throughout the whole of your career, and if you've been a broker yourself, and a broker that was consolidated now so long ago, certainly well before SARS. So maybe I'll put some, something in the notes about all the history of that, but it wouldn't be much fun to go into all of that now. But it's always been surprising me that how much more consolidation is happening in this global wholesale insurance broking environment. It just surprises me that it could be ongoing. And I keep thinking it's done and it never quite is. And there are other deals. In someone in your business, has it affected the way that you go about your business now that you're probably dealing with a much smaller number of brokers that are probably bigger than before? It hasn't affected us at all. And again, for those of you who go back to August 2020, I think you asked me the same question in 2020. Yes. You said, am I worried about it? I'm surprised I'm asking it again because just I thought we were sort of done by then, but we're never done. I think I'll never ask that question again. I think whether it's an insurance company, whether it's a broker or whether it's other financial services firms, There is a long-term trend towards consolidation and companies getting bigger. You know, same in manufacturing and elsewhere. I mean, global companies are getting bigger. And that is a trend that will never change, in my view, whether it's, say, within the insurance company world or the broking world. The important way, in my mind, to look upon this, if you bring it back to an insurance company, is the healthy competition in the distribution space. And if I look today at the structure of the broking industry. There's been huge consolidation, huge change, but it is highly, highly competitive. And clients have a choice. They can put their risk out to tender, they can issue RFPs, and all the brokers will rip each other's throats out to try and win that business. And if there's still healthy competition and competition breeds innovation and hunger, that's good. And there is absolutely no less up I've seen in any competitive or lack of competitive behaviour in the broking world. Do you think there's a barrier to entry, though? Do you worry at all about the David Howdens of the future, that that it'll be harder and harder for someone, you know, David Howden sort of going on a 30-year journey that he's done? Is there someone sitting in Lime Street, probably in a bigger broker, who wants to start on their own, who couldn't do that because the barriers have got higher? I mean, as a carrier, does that worry you so they might also no, it doesn't worry point. me at all. And we've got plenty of examples of startups. I mean, you interviewed Steve McGill the other month, and when Steve talks about wanting to create a billion-dollar broker, and he's up this particular level so far. And, you know, he's a living example of someone who's demonstrated there are very minor barriers to entry. The other thing that probably as journalists we'd be probably guilty of also is that there are lots of smaller brokers, but they're not that big. They're not big enough to perhaps sort of put themselves about in terms of marketing and public relations and things. So they're just busy getting on with it. And at some point, they'll get big enough for us to notice that they're there, but they've probably always been there. Yeah. Or they stay as a specialist in a particular line of business and they operate below the radar, but they're still delivering in the segment in which they choose to thriving, And they're still competing with really big brokers. I haven't seen the numbers recently, but there's probably 150 Lloyd's brokers these days. And obviously, there's some very big Lloyds brokers and small Lloyds brokers, but it's a pretty vast array of talent and competition. You're dealing with all the biggest, but presumably you're still dealing with some very, very small brokers. Absolutely. And again, I don't have the number to my head, but once they get through our vetting process and our security process, we deal with hundreds of brokers all around the world. 
think we should talk about digital things. We've talked about how much data is now available compared to in the early 80s, the pre-fax era. And also you've talked about integrating your own operations around the world. In London, we're on the cusp of lots of digital reforms. We've probably been through lots of different false storms together, Julian, on this over many, many years. But I think now we can really see something that is going to be a digital market, a digital first market is going to be available to all of us in that world where obviously huge amounts of data can be poured into the market collectively by everybody and brought in from third parties as well. What's going to actually change? I suppose also when we have a market where the friction is disappearing. Well, the way I think about this is in two separate ways. One is how digital behaviour is going to help the efficiency of the distribution chain. And we've witnessed how digital channels have transformed all forms of financial services. And if you take areas like private motor insurance in the UK, you know, it's all digital. And you go and buy a travel policy, it's all digital. Ten years ago, you'd fill out a paper form and be a very, very different process. And we're beginning to see the impact of that into more the bespoke areas like wholesale broking. And there's still more work that needs to get done. There's still a huge amount of frictional cost that doesn't benefit anybody. And all the work that's been done in London to continually improve that is absolutely the right thing to do. I'm an impatient person. And do I think the pace is high as I'd like it to be? No, it's not. And I think customers get frustrated that a lot of their premium dollars are spent on people's inefficiencies. On the distribution side, when it comes to areas like wholesale, underwriting and breaking, you need to continue to really push hard to get some of these. What about your own admin expense? Our, if you look at our admin spend across the company, actually, we have one of the lowest expense ratios against our peer groups. I suppose with a lot of these things, you have to prime the pump before you start. And so you, I presume you can't really budget in a huge amount of savings because you're spending a huge amount on the digitization process itself. But at some point, hopefully in year five, year six, it'll start to amortise itself and really come into its own. You might see some savings then. We have this debate internally within Sompo as to how to make ourselves more efficient. And I remember when I arrived here, beginning of 2020, I looked around at some of our processes and I thought, well, actually, why are we using so many spreadsheets? Why are we rekeying data? And we had our own internal reviews and we've streamlined a lot of our internal processes because that's what you should do as a responsible business. And are we at the end of the journey for that? No, of course not. You've got to keep on striving to make that more efficient and handle data more efficiently and be able to sort of analyze all of that. And you can never let up on that. It's a big area of focus for us. So, you know, operating efficiency and helping take out costs, meaningless costs in the distribution chain is a really important area of activity for us all as a business. But the second thing I think when you start talking about data and where I think about this is that how can data help you drive better results and a better understanding of risk? And at Sompo, we have invested quite heavily across the company in trying to get our minds around data and what that means in our business. And I talked earlier about we're a very diverse company. We, we run nursing homes. We have a life business, we have private customers, we have commercial customers, you know, a very broad spectrum. And we have made, and if you go on to the Sompai website, you know, you will see some of the investments that, that we've made. We have an investment in a company called Palantir, 
in California is very well known around the industry. We have digital labs in places like Tel Aviv and in Tokyo and elsewhere. And we think that trying to get our minds around how data can be used to predict events and predict health events and things like that is a very, very good use of our resources. So I suppose it's sort of, rather than just think about it, saving on admin expense, it's far better to actually reduce the loss ratio. Easy to get 10 points off the loss ratio than it is to get two points off the expense ratio. Yeah, but it's also helpful for your customers, right? If you could say to a customer, and I'm just making this up. You can say, I can stop you having losses. Yeah. And you say, you know, if you drive your car in rainy conditions and you've only got two years of experience, you are more likely to have a loss than whatever. Or, yeah. you know, you start bringing it into areas of health. It starts really changing the world. So we as a company you know, invest quite a lot in that area, trying to get our minds around thinking through how all that data can help with predictions and can help with our own internal pricing of risk. And do you think it's taking might be just that your future growth, you know, say if you double in size, you won't have to double that expense ratio so that you could effectively half your expense ratio because your future growth will come at a much lower cost. You won't have to suddenly double the number of underwriters to double the number of premium. Without doubt. And if we don't take unnecessary expense out of the business, whether you stay at the same size or whether you double size and where you get economies of scale, we failed as business leaders. The world needs to be more efficient. And there are still pockets of the insurance world that are highly inefficient. And I've never understood you know, how you can explain to a customer how much of their premium dollars are lost on useless processes that add no value. That's a tough thing to explain to a risk manager, isn't it? We waste a load of money on paper. Most of this year, Every other headline in the newspaper has been about chat GPT or some form of AI. Obviously, it's been around, but it seems to have exploded into public consciousness, particularly over the last six months. And who knows if some of those headlines were even written by chat GPT. Given what you've said about this wider Sompo universe being so plugged into all the technologies and all the tech, what's your view on it? I mean, will you be getting some of this tech to be doing your underwriting for you, or at least informing your underwriters? Or how much of that is already happening? And of course, we've seen some of these algorithmic style underwriting operations. As you're thinking advance on that, as now that obviously the sophistication seems to be advancing at an almost exponential rate. Well, first and foremost, you've got to embrace the technology. As a productivity game, one presumes you've got to do it, right? You can't sit here and say, well, it's not going to happen. And therefore, I'm going to put my head in the sand and sort of wake up in 10 years time. Because it's happening. It's happening in all forms of our lives, right? And it's a bit like when the internet started. And did we know at that time how the internet was going to affect our lives and whether, you know, again, if I said to you that you could walk into your very palatial house tonight and say, please turn up the music and play the Rolling Stones, you know, you'd say, no, it could never happen. And it starts impacting your world. And chat GPT is going to do exactly the same. How it's going to affect the world, I don't know. And we are beginning to think and get our minds around it as an organization, and we probably get 5% of our predictions right. But you've got to embrace it, and you've got to accept that it is a new tool, and it's incredibly powerful. Someone presumes there are people in the organization whose job it is to work out what to do about all this and to practice underwriting with these yeah, tools. Yeah, no, we've, we've got a team thinking through the implications. And yes, you might use it in underwriting processes, you might use it as a customer service tool. I mean... There are whole different ways that that technology could be harnessed for the benefit of ourselves and the benefit of our customers. Should we expect to see something at some point? 
in terms of, you know, we've seen the algorithmic underwriting launches and things that perhaps are very publicity friendly. Nothing from you. It's going to be more in the background and probably it's more like you're sitting behind the desk rather than sort of front of house. To be honest, I don't know. I wish I could predict the future. And I think that it's a fool who predicts how technology is going to be used in the future. And, you know, we're sitting here the week that Apple have just launched a virtual reality headset. And I know those have been around for years, but what are the implications of that? Are the implications that you're never going to go to a live concert again? I don't know. I mean, I went to a live concert last night, which I thoroughly enjoyed, and I would miss not being able to. But actually, if someone said, well, here's a headset and you can sit in your living room and have the same experience, well, that might be better than trying to fight your way home at 11 o'clock at night on the tube. Changing subject, there was something, again, looking through those Sumpo results, probably a bit of a softer theme here. Sumpo said it was looking to transform its corporate culture to become a theme park for security, health, and well-being. What does that mean in practice? Is that more on the talent acquisition retention side, do you think? Is it sort of make it a really nice place to work? We have a really powerful concept in Sompo. And if you listen to our group CEO, he talks a lot about the Sompo purpose. And yes, he's used the expression, a theme park. But what he talks about is our purpose as an organization is to help every person live a more healthy and prosperous and happy life. Simple as that. And it's not about some power employees, it's about making the world a better place. So we talk a lot about the Sompo purpose and what we are as a company and what we're trying to do. We then take it a stage further and we then say, right, we're a company that's made up of 45, 50,000 individuals. And therefore, what you should think about as an individual is what your own individual purpose is. And think about that and think about what you want out of life. And then translate that into say, well, how does that help the company purpose? And it's a very, very powerful concept because, you know, define the culture of the people that you want within an organization and define what you're doing as an organization it provides a lot of clarity around that. And a lot of organizations don't really know why they're here. You know, people talk about maximizing shareholder return or making their boss rich or making more money for yourself, whatever it might be. But actually, Sakurada San, our group CEO, has been very clear about our purpose as an organization and encouraging us all to think about how your individual purpose is going to contribute or not to the wider purpose. And, you know, we're sitting in our office in London. Last week in our broker lounge, just 20 metres from where we are, we hosted Sakurada-san and a Sompo Global Town Hall, where this event was broadcast to our 45, 50,000 employees. And I sat on the stage with Sakurada-san and we had individuals from Turkey, from Israel, from London, talking about their own individual purpose and how that impacts the Sompo purpose. And we're encouraging people to think like that. So that's what it's all about. And it's a very, very powerful concept. That's really interesting because I, know I wouldn't have expected to be talking about philosophy on an insurance podcast, but I think we are, aren't we? No, we are. And you know, I don't want to get sort of too carried away with the philosophy, but it, again, if you go onto our public website, there's a lot of information there on the first page about our purpose as an organisation. 
And it does start changing your thinking. And when I think about it, and I think about my own journey through the insurance world, to be honest, when I was in my 20s, I had no idea why I was coming to work. I mean, you come to work because you've got to pay the rent and you've got to scrape enough money to get down to the East India on a Friday night and have a good time. But you don't really know why you come to work. And as time's gone on, you start thinking about the impact that the insurance world has on other people's lives. And people talk about rebuilding people's lives after tragedy. And people talk about giving security to entrepreneurs and businesses and acting as a facilitation of world trade and all of those good things. And it's absolutely right. And actually, therefore, when you're sitting here, whether you're in a broker or a carrier, to be clear about the impact that you're having on others is very, very powerful. And that's where we try and think as an organization is it's about customers. It's about improving the customers' lives. But it's also interesting that you've got that individualism as well, because I suppose often when I think of more sort of Eastern philosophies, you think of everyone being worker bees and sort of protecting the hive, but not really sacrificing all of their own individuality for that. But obviously, which often clashes with more Western philosophy of being a load of individuals like swashbuckling our way around the world. But it's quite nice that, that this is combining a bit of both. It is. And I think we all need to recognise that we're all individuals and we all have different personalities and we have different motivations. And, you know, I don't always understand my wife, but I know she's a different individual from who I am. And if you can get people to think honestly about who they are as individuals, you can then hopefully allow them to channel who they are as individuals to a wider purpose. And then all the money and success come as a byproduct of doing your purpose well rather than being the object in itself. Yeah, absolutely right. That's a really good place to end. Thank you, Julian. I've really enjoyed talking. As always, it's always really good to catch up with you. Unless there's something else you'd like to add, I think we, we could uh, well, end here. Thanks once again. It's been a fascinating conversation. You know, I always find my conversations with you, they are conversations. You never quite know which path they're going <laughs> to meander through. But no, I, I think it's been fantastic. And I hope it's not three years till you invite me back. I'm striving to get to the level where I become one of your third guests, where I know some people have got to, but I hope I get invited well, back. Well, absolutely. Too long. I know you're definitely going to be down. You're definitely invited back already. Let's just put it on the record now. Good. Thank you very much, Julian. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.